Hello and welcome to the Disney Animated Cannonball. Welcome back. I'm Talon Lee, he, him. I'm Foxy, she, her. And this week we get to talk about Snow White 2, the story of a class slipper. Disney's 80 minute story of Send Feet. 10 minutes of story thrillingly compressed into 80 minutes. Cinderella. I'm glad you made the send feature, because I honestly, I was going to go there if you didn't. <laughs> Good, as long as we're on the same wavelength, you know. I do think Snow White 2 is a bit unfair. <laughs> Nothing fucking happens. But this prince has a name. <laughs> what, His name what? is My Son. Oh, okay, because like, I, I was pretty sure he doesn't. <laughs> no, he doesn't. <sighs> <laughs> he looks like a wooden Ken doll. He is so astonishingly featureless, it's... Ah, uh, it's kind of delicious. Uh, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Radio. Do you want to do the plot summary this time? I think it's been enough time. I think we've... I've been putting my reps. I've done my lifts. I think I can pull this off. Oh, well, I mean, this is easy mode compared to the last six movies we did, because this one has a plot. Yep. Even if it's not very long. Fuck me, we did six of those. No, <laughs> we did. Six. Six. Ah. All right. Tell me the story of Cinderella. Time starts now a young lady has a wicked stepmother and two wicked stepsisters they don't want her to go to a fancy ball that is held by the prince her fairy godmother turns up and lets her go to the ball by giving her temporary reprieve from her poverty she goes she meets the prince they dance once he falls in love forever in the next day she and she flees the scene before her magic runs out she leaves behind a glass slipper that is the source of a translation pun and then the next day the king sends out people to try and find the person whose slipper was left behind eventually culminating in the revelation that this one girl is the only person who can wear this preposterous piece of footwear she wins everyone else loses monarchy persists and power supports itself <laughs> Did you succeed? Who knows? Who cares? Moving on. I'll I'll find out and care on the edit. Oh, I'm sorry. Didn't get appropriate praise for getting it in only 44 seconds. Future talent knows and future talent cares. Yeah, well. Yeah. Congratulations or commiserations as required. You can just delete the one you don't need, right? I could. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so uh, Cinderella. Yeah. A bedtime story that can be done in five minutes. <laughs> now in 80 minute movie form i mean i'm st i must have been so scarred by the previous ones because i'm just glad to have a, a feature length animated film again it isn't even interestingly weird <laughs> I, I mean they did a little more with it than the bare necessities unfortunately yeah. they're not strictly interesting most of the time everything they added is boring <laughs> Did, did you have specific notes, or...? I did actually have some specific notes, but for the most part, it was just a sequence of ugh. Uh, it is it is a lot like the Snow White, where I know full well that my initial, like, impressions of the whole thing were just very negative, so I didn't bother writing most of them down. Actually, uh, we should probably start with our history with this movie. Yes. Uh, had you seen any or all of this? I'd seen excerpts. Um, I, I have strong memories of a video easy or possibly, uh, similar brand, of, of, um, VHS tape as a child that had clearly been through the ringer. That's Australian for blockbuster. <laughs> that had been run through the ringer at, um, our, uh, at our local rental place that had therefore been put on the throwout rack to be replaced, because that happens, bought by the church, and it included 
as like the wonderful world of Disney. And like, here's a live action of some monkeys and here is uh, a bit of mouse size and whatever. And then also <laughs> including um, the music clip for Bibbidi Bobbidi Boop, which a lady from our church <laughs> taped all the audio over with a tape duplicator <laughs> because Bibbidi Bobbidi Boop is full of magic words. Okay, first of all, I love that you're saying Bibbidi Bobbidi Boop. But is is that not the? <laughs> it's just boo. Oh, but oh. boop is much funnier. Oh, oh no! I've ruined the sanctity of the fucking <laughs> I lyrics. I, you can't just make this shit up, Talon. Those are magic words. Well, that's the thing. I'm trying to avoid animating anything <laughs> in our house. I guess. <laughs> fucking Christ! Oh, wait. So what did they tape over it with? Blank audio. <laughs> so it was the song, except for the like seventy percent of the song that is the made up words. Yep. Wow. <laughs> wow! We were pretty weird. Why haven't it all? I mean, Monkeys. At that point, you've not got a song. There was a trailer for Benji uh, at the start. Ooh, Benji the Hunted? The dog. I don't know. No, I mean, was that the Benji movie? Because there were more than one Benji movie. I think this one had him in a diving suit. Definitely not the one I'm thinking of. Anyway, yeah. So that's my history with Cinderella. <laughs> Uh, well, my history of Cinderella is I have seen this before, because I've seen all of them at least once, uh, but mostly not in its entirety, uh, which is to say I have seen it fully through at least once, but mostly I've seen the bit at the very end with the hero dog as part of a wonderful World of Disney special on hero dogs in Disney movies. I'm just going to provide some reader context. I'm a dog person, and as a child I was insufferably a dog person. Yeah, like the dog is... The dog is one of the major characters of the piece. <laughs> oh, well, that's not really true. The dog yeah. is a secondary character. But this was about all the bit part dogs, as well as all the main character dogs. So they're like, does this movie have a bit where a dog does something heroic? Great, put it in there. Chekhov's pup. Do you know the dogs from the Aristocats? We'll get there when we get there. Right. <laughs> yep. So, well, we have the first pup chunk, which is our uh, personal histories. Next up, we have the... Of its time division, or possibly the Yikes Door. I mean, this one isn't. This remarkably unyikesy for fifties Disney. I gotta say. Well, once once you accept the baseline assumptions of Cinderella as a story, then yeah, this is actually like reasonably replicative of of the existing morals and ethics of that. It's just that those are from the seventeenth century. <laughs> I'm not saying. Uh, I'm not saying not Death to King, but I'm saying that even now, just being in favor of monarchies is still not in Yikes Door territory. It's it is really interesting because this this sort of should serve as a like a baseline parameter for of its time stuff because people say, oh, the timeless work of Disney, and you go back and like, no, Dumbo is about like physical, uh, uh, modern for the time circuses with animal acts that have all been phased out and like really period-specific racist jokes. Oh, everything in Disney is incredibly of its time. The idea that they're timeless just means, uh, I liked this, so I'm going to show it to my kids, and therefore they grew up liking it, so they think of it as being part of their time as well. That's how timeless Disney magic happens. And one of the things that goes in this space as well is that certain kinds of, for lack of a better term, isms are often things you kind of have to go out of your way. Like, you can point out, this movie's racist in that there are no speaking characters that aren't white people. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Really, the the way that this one isn't yikesy is just that they've completely avoided putting anything but white people in here, including cartoon characters who are obvious references to non-white people. 
Yeah. When they get turned into animal, when they get turned into other forms of animals or people, they are whiter. <laughs> um, but so, so you have that fundamental, like you can, you can be racist through a mission. And when, for example, in H.P. Lovecraft's work, I bring this up, H.P. Lovecraft's work is transphobic because he actually goes out of his way to include a story that's about the horror of finding out that someone's gender is not the gender they were assigned at birth. And it's done through cosmic sorcerer nonsense, but it is still- Of course it is. You need magic to change something like that. Exactly. But it's still a transphobic story that, like, goes out of its way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, For a while there, I liked the idea of using the term cissexist versus- uh, transphobic in a, like one is I am just going to go along with the default assumed normal and what the other one is I'm going to go out of my way to be cruel to trans people but in the end like that's a division that's not necessary whereas in this one it is it is just baseline white European empire bullshit of those things it's not actively anything in any direction mostly because it's not much of anything at all <laughs> meeting the lowest possible bar yeah try harder yeah. But uh, maybe in this period of history, we should be glad that you didn't try harder. Mm. Because I, mean, uh, I think Peter Pan's next. Oh, boy! Yeah. Um, one thing I will say, and this is not mel- this is not my take. This is, this is from readings of takes at the time. Th- so here is a bit of, of its time. Um, people were really distressed by how sexy her voice was. <laughs> oh, right. Yes, I... I mean, this is worlds away from Snow White in my mind, because Snow White looks and sounds and acts like a giant baby until she's surrounded by a crew of seven giant babies that she has to become the mother of. Cinderella feels like a person. She she has opinions. She can, she smart mouths at people as soon as their backs are turned, which they richly deserve. Yeah. Like, she's got a bit of sass to her, and for the 50s, I feel like she probably has a lot of sass to her. Yeah, and the, the actress in question was apparently renownedly sexy. <laughs> in a way that, like, it's really funny reading 1950s um, critics in the newspaper because they what they want to say is she's fuckable, but they don't want to. <laughs> but obviously, they can't use that they can, word. Yeah, they and can't so, even allude to that word, really. Yeah, so you get this kind of like you know defining a thing by its absence. Is it two faces or is it a vase? <laughs> kind of language of like, oh, I'm I'm not so sure about the vocal tenor and quality as pertains to the innocent world of children's media. I'm like, what the <laughs> fuck are you talking about? What the actual fuck are you talking about? Listen, she got me horny. Yeah. I don't want my kids to know. Yeah, and, like, that is that is an interesting thing of its time. And Honest to God makes me like her a lot. Yeah, she's she's definitely the most likable character I can think of to be, like, central to any of these yet. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm still very fond of Dumbo, so. Yeah. I, he, I mean, he's fairly nothing he is a character himself. He, he is also a I giant. I can understand if you said there's nothing there. I could understand if you said there's nothing there. He is also a giant baby. Oh, well, that's true. He's literally a giant baby. <laughs> and, like, Snow White, I wouldn't so much characterize as a baby in my mind as you were about to describe her. The thing that sprang to my mind was that she was a very large balloon, just bobbing through everything and then <laughs> occasionally wheezing out air in a, in a squeak. Well, not a baby, but an actual little girl. Like, yeah. she, the singing affect from that time is her voice sounds distressingly childlike yeah uh if you're trying to contextualize her as like an adult who might be ready to fall in love or something and her her 
acting and her movement and how she's drawn and the size of her tiny, tiny body uh, is all very, like, she reads as a little kid to me and it's really hard to overcome that. Yep. Uh, I don't believe it's intentional, except insofar as that was the preferred style for a an ingenue to look. So, I mean, it is intentional in that sense. What yeah. I mean is, I don't think they intended to show me a child. Just something that looked attractively like a child. Yeah, the, the awful 1930s aesthetic of sexy baby. Yeah. And we're extremely not there anymore with Cinderella, so, like, yeah. thank God for small miracles. Yeah, it's, it's technically uh, uh, <laughs> uh, two decades apart. This is 1950. Yeah. This is, ah, it's it's wild to think. Once again, in the same way that, that everyone sort of forgets the Disney Dark Ages of compilation musicals and nothing half movies, uh, it's it's so easy to forget that there's like 20 years between Cinderella and Snow White, the first two Disney princesses. 13? But like one is a 30s thing and it's very 30s and the other is 50s and it's helping establish the 50s. Hooray for Cinderella not being a large prepubescent child yep and uh that's about the best and nicest thing i can think of to say about this movie <laughs> it's better than snow white i i found more to like yeah i have to say um she i mean she has basic agency this is a very old movie about a girl who marries into being a princess and you know we know what we're going in here for and i'm not going to be like well why weren't they decades ahead of their time at disney a company which has, you know, aside from being the the first place to do feature-length animated film, at least in the West, I really should look up so I don't have to keep putting that asterisk there. Uh, but the point is, Disney is a safe-as-fuck company by now. They, they are going to do what is safe. With the recent, as of the 2010s, introduction of uh, semi-openly semi gay-coded characters in Disney movies, we can say mm. that the Disney company has now finally enter the 20th century <laughs> that's, a, that's a very good way to describe it thank you talent appreciate yeah. that it's <laughs> Cass was robbed <laughs> oh god yeah we're gonna <laughs> that's not that's not part of the canon though it's anyway. not <laughs> well i mean tangled is but um also i guess i would point out that this movie has an actual instance of thematic resonance where a theme is used twice uh, in a few different ways. What are you thinking of? I think that there is a, there are two different characters who express dreams in this, and both of them have their dreams come true. <laughs> you were very cross at, at her tut-tutting at the dog in the beginning, weren't you? I really was. You just have to let that dream go. I, I thought a dream was a wish your heart makes. Hmm? hmm? Well, not if you're a dog. Dogs don't have hearts. Aha, but they do! <laughs> and they'll save this movie for you. Yeah, it was it was a drop of action. And and also <laughs> the fact that she, you know, like the way it concluded also shows that she has a, a a modicum of actual like agency. Yeah, I this is what I was talking about earlier when like they added a few things, and I like going further than the basic story required. Uh not in the sense of just a lot of mouse slapstick to pad things out. Um but in the sense of, like, having the first attempt at the dress and, like, her proactively trying to plan for these things to actually get what she wants. And, uh, you know, doing the twist with the broken slipper as well, because if you don't keep that part, then you've made just by far the most boring version of the story. Yep. I don't think this is the first place that we see that twist. I, I think it's from older retellings. Big O Shruggo. Big O Shruggo, yes. I 
Would you believe I've not read a lot of versions of Cinderella in my time? No. And most of the ones that I've read um, include the hobnail boots and stuff like that. So, like, let's just leave that one alone. <laughs> yes, at least they didn't torture the evil sisters to death at the end of this one. Though, I mean, in this one, in this context, that would be really justified. Like, mm. like in this story, everything is comically mean. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm not saying that we need to forgive them. I just, I'm not really in favor of torturing anyone to death. Even billionaires, I would just, you know... Clean shot to the head. Yeah. So, and there, and there we get another thing, which is this movie is is very much a kind of a capitalist metaphysical movie where fundamentally what she views is her lot in life is un it's ungood. She does not want this, but at no point is rebellion or revolution seen as acceptable. She can't. For some reason, just fucking leave. I mean, realistically, she can't, because we're obviously working with a semi-realistic European historical time and place where you can't just go and be a woman on your own without fucking dying in the streets. Except she has all the skills required of a uh, of a house servant, and she would get paid. That's true. If she just went and be a servant somewhere else, she'd be a lot better off. That's fair. Yeah, she wouldn't be beginning. Uh, she would be able to leave and go find a bastard or mistress who would not abuse her which is like that's that's pretty dire by the way like it's not a great solution but it is a solution yeah and ultimately like that's that's still operating within her box and the aspiration of this is to get to a higher position within that box to hold the chain at a different point and her freedom comes by holding the chain at the highest point uh, underneath her prince husband and probably the king. One assumes. Whereas, you know, this is about dreams and fantasies and wishes and, like, you know, the one person with a violent wish is the person who gets it to come true <laughs> and it saves the fucking day. So maybe sharpen up some goddamn guillotines. <laughs> Bruno is a comrade. Well, all dogs are comrades. All dogs are comrades. I, um... Uh... I wanted to make a particular note, which I'm sure you picked up on as well, but I want to I wanna check first and see if it's in your notes as well. Uh, because on the topic of extremely period-appropriate uh, Disney-just-fucking-love-this-stuff kind of capitalism, you bestow personhood upon non-human things by making them little manufactured clothes. Yes! I thought you'd love that one. Yes! <laughs> that's such a... Ah, oh, that's such a fucking western capitalism move whereas in whereas you could you could just imagine like a different like imagine a ghibli film where he's like oh i'll hand the mouse a thing and tell the mouse its name and the mouse is gonna be like fuck you like i know myself i know my place in the world i don't need your clothes and i don't need your name <laughs> it is now you to come to us in the woodlands to learn of us and the better way of life because everything is better when everything is pastoral thus saith ghibli except planes are pretty cool <laughs> It's not that they don't like industry. They just like industry to be the thing that you can go and have a short holiday with before returning back to your pastoral uh, nostalgia. Yeah. Point is that, yeah, this is this is extremely Disney <laughs> Disney in that regard. There's, there's so much of this stuff that's just underscoring just like the fundamental ways that this man, who ultimately was the, the character defining of the company. Um, do you notice that all the animals have hallmarks of being working class? Why do the birds have hairnets? <laughs> well, I assume because Cinderella wanted them to be awakened as well, so she made them little clothes. She's a druid! <laughs> She's a shitty druid. <laughs> well, she has no forest! She's living in a tower! She's, 
got to work with what she's got. She could take on the form of a horse and stomp them all with her hooves. <laughs> I want to say Gus truly is a benevolent soul because if I got turned into a horse while a cat was trying to kill and eat me, that'd probably be a cat with no skull anymore. Yeah, yeah, like, sorry. Just on instinct, I feel like that's going to happen. It's a very natural form of retaliation. <laughs> and, like, you, you said while we were watching that Gus has an Ewok's soul. <laughs> and, like... I'm torn because I want to like that element of Gus, but I can't shake the fact that this character exists and was introduced and included in this story, which is one day to be the hilarious fat friend. Gus is an extended fat jerk, yeah. I This is not a character I had affection for. I just enjoyed how belligerent he was, <laughs> well, which he I hadn't be. noticed in previous versions. And, and that is something. Like, typically speaking, the fat friend is usually passive and feminized, whereas in this one, Gus wants to start some shit. Yeah, I think we might actually be in the era where the fat friend is usually the aggressive one as well. Yeah. Because this is in the era era of, like, this is in the era of, well, proper men think things through. I don't know, because once again, the, the media that I watch from the 50s is Disney, so mm-hmm. maybe not. But uh, I, I have the instinct that that's where it is right now, and the turning point to uh, men are aggressive, fat friends are feminine, uh, does come later on. But yeah, and like every good character in this is depicted as working. The bad characters are depicted as not. I mean, except for the royalty, of course. But the king, what's the king doing? The king is trying to make a ball happen. To, <laughs> like, oh, I guess so. And don't get me wrong, his job is the furtherance of the monarchy. But like, legitimately speaking, he is trying to get jobs done. Okay, okay. Whereas the stepsisters and the um, mother are depicted as sleeping in all day and so is Lucifer. I mean, sisters, yes. Stepmother, less so. She's pretty industrious in a social climber kind of way. Like, she is trying desperately to engineer her two daughters into something that could keep her in her old age. I don't think anything that she does in this with the sort of aloof sereneness she has could be considered desperate. She does become increasingly desperate towards the end, but I agree. Like, she... She has composure. That's what makes her a a good, if not villain, then certainly a good study in character animation. Yeah. <laughs> I that's the thing that has struck me rewatching this as an adult. Um, I can see a direct lineage from the evil stepmother, who I think is now called Lady Tremaine, since we like to pretend that all these Disney characters who are stock characters have names. The biggest fucking eye roll. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um but a, a direct line from her to Frollo, who is sort of universally considered Disney's most compelling villain. She does look like Frollo's daughter. And yeah, they have... Uh, I, I would love to know if there were studies done of this material when they made Hunchback, because they do have a lot of similar shit going on. And animation-wise, there is an interesting comparison to between her, Frollo, and Ichabod Crane, where the narrowness and the thinness and the angular nature of face, nose, chin, eyes, in Crane's case, is interrupted with the, well, arc of his nose. Like, he has mm-hmm. that beaky nose, and that makes him look silly. He's oh, still God. got problems. He's called <laughs> I didn't notice. All right, sorry, go on. Uh, but, like, I wouldn't be surprised if the Disney animators did that. Like, oh, Ichabod Crane, let's make him look like a bird. But he looks more like a parrot. It's fair. Anyway, the point is that, like, that particular visual language, Disney basically had gotten pretty good at, like, the narrow, mean, lean kind of shape of a person. Then, um, like, Frollo is that form perfected. Yeah, and I think this might be where they sort of start doing that for villains, too. Because previously, well, we barely had villains previously, so I guess it's a bit unfair. Yeah. But 
our evil stepmother is very conventionally woman shaped. She's not. She is in anything. fact. She's not anything exaggerated. Really, she's pretty realistic. She is in fact the three women shapes. <laughs> well, that's true. Okay, yes. <laughs> um, and and what what else have we got? Pinocchio, where the villains are foxes and cats and a huge fat racist stereotype, and another huge fat racist stereotype. But he's white, so we don't feel sorry for. Him. Yep, it's it's um it's a bit of a it, it is a bit of an interesting evolution and one to look forward to going forward, especially because I know that we have Peter Pan coming up, and you could see that same triangular head narrowness about Captain <laughs> Hook with the Ichabod Crane bird nose. And he is a wildly different type of villain as well. Like, mm-hmm. he's uh, camp as you can get, basically. Whereas our villain here is, uh, her entire thing is just being cold as possible. And they do a lot of great shots of her where they lock parts of her body in place while other parts move. So she has that kind of, you know, just slightly insectile sort of look. Where she's fixed on you like a predator and the hand stroking the cat. Yeah, which which is also interesting because it has the strong feeling of this was done off a model sheet. I mean, it's animation, it's all done off model no, sheets. No, 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 like, we have one photo of this model in this pose, and that's... Oh! We're keeping as much of this still as we can. No, <laughs> no, that was done for the effect. That was done because this woman is an ambush predator. Fair enough. <laughs> Beyond that, I don't really have tons to say about this. There was one specific thing where, um, like, the, the whole thing is about inherent quality, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like we were talking earlier about why, since Cinderella is a bit proactive about improving her situation, why she can't just go and find someone else to work for. And the answer is because that's not virtuous. Because she's suffering to deserve something. From a narrative perspective. Not from her perspective, obviously. Mm. But, like, we we joke about it, but we know why she doesn't do the thing. Yeah, and this, is, this isn't a Hamlet and Hanglides kind of situation. Like, this is the point of the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, it is the incredibly Protestant story that you suffer virtuously and you hope you are one of the chosen. And in her case, she was chosen to be good and that's why she's pretty and her family were not chosen to be good and therefore they suck. (laughs) And they suck inherently. Oh, I forgot to mention right at the top end of this film, the ugly-ass storybook opening. Yes! Does that thing look like plastic or what? Yeah, and this is the 1950s, so that plastic is toxic. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. We're gonna see a lot more of those. I just wanted to point it out because it's one of my favorite things about it. They're such art pieces, and yet there's that tacky bullshit. Yep. <laughs> well, at the time, that looked like they considered sure it to be impressive. See, also Cinderella's initial going to the ball dress. Oh boy. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I liked it better. It, it seemed more of her, but the point of it was that the. The ball gown is meant to not be her. It's meant to be that expression of that inherent inner self. You know, you are a princess as expressed by this. And like, again, Protestantism, temporary reprieve, the the <laughs> whole, like, what what is her greatest wish? For one night having a mild party, which as we see, <laughs> isn't exactly a fucking banger. Well, I mean, to be fair, she doesn't specify her one wish. She does. She says, I never wanted anything more. Well, that's what I was going to say. She doesn't specify what she was wishing wishing for at the beginning. She just says it was a lovely dream. Okay. Uh, but she does, she she says it's more than I'd ever hoped for to the fairy godmother at the end. And that, like, I feel like that's inaccurate. I feel like you probably did hope for more than this, actually. But, you know, you're being written as a good girl 
who would never ask for more than what she was given. And <clears throat> and and that's where you have this like, you know, massive, phenomenal, magical, cosmical power of someone who appears out of nowhere as an expression of your faith. She does explicitly uh, yeah. tie it to faith. I was gonna bring that up. Who then says you know, well, I can do magic. I can rend the fabric of reality. I can transform life. And the result of this is you get to go to, again, a slightly crap party. But not for too long. <laughs> the smallness of the imagination. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And and this isn't, this isn't like, you know, if what if I had a fairy godmother at that point in my life when I'd wanted things most of all? Yeah, there'd be blood in the streets. But the point... <laughs> isn't like there are a range of better kinder sweeter wishes wish your mum was back oh that'd be nice wish your dad was back for one day or something like that and have him put the fear of hell in your stepmother <laughs> like there is a version of this story where just like a, an ambition that sees the rolling back of impossibilities if anything could come true and what you want is a nice dress and a couple of hours of a party. That's obviously not what she actually wants. She wants her life to not suck. I will say this. Um, it rings as very true to me for someone who is traumatized and trying to justify, like, this, this is fine. This is fine. I can work with what I have. I just... I just have to do the shit and then they leave me alone. Yeah. I can make this work. I can still salvage this. The term you're looking for is learned helplessness. Yes. Yeah. All right. And fine. that's not, that doesn't seem unrealistic. <laughs> I'm not allowed to make fun of that. In this scenario. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I of all people am not allowed to make fun of that. <laughs> and especially because at the moment when the magic happened without her, uh, you know, actually codifying anyway, like this is not a Dick Genie situation or anything. No. Uh, but like, the reason that the whole scene happens is because just this particular thing is distressing enough to be the breaking point. So you can sort of see why that might register as like, right now, it, it was just this one thing. This was the only thing I wanted for myself. Yeah. It's not unrelatable. Yeah, no, it, it makes sense. It's just, it, it is absolutely emotionally, meaningfully sensible. The issue I have is the world it paints <laughs> is fantastically failed in its imagination and largely views the inevitable outcome where she becomes a princess as, oh yeah, you couldn't possibly have anything better. With infinite cosmic <laughs> power, that's literally the best thing that could happen. Uh, One girl whose life sucks doesn't suck as much anymore. I mean, on the other hand, if you if you do the version of this that is logically satisfying, then you get a shitty, you know, YouTube response video to your live action remake. So I'm not saying I want that either. I like this version is the more emotionally satisfying one. If also the stupider one. The live action version of this movie is two hours long. <laughs> think about how little I think <sighs> of this movie and how much of it I think is padding. I mean, this movie is about half padding realistically. <laughs> I, you do, you need good setup, you need character beats so you get to actually feel some emotion for these characters uh you need a couple of songs you maybe even keep the one comedy animal psychic sequence where they do the dress even and if you get rid of all the other bits but you still only have about half the runtime in the end and you do genuinely want some filler you want some decompression points yeah, yeah. but you don't want it half filler no they they did a lot of yeah 
I mean, like Nightingale. That's just something to put on the soundtrack, isn't it? Yeah, which, incidentally, this is one of the first movies to have a released soundtrack. Oh, wow. It is something to put on the soundtrack. Yep. My God, I forgot that the Mice do Chipmunk voice all the way through this. <sighs> yep. I... I don't know how I managed to erase that detail, because like I said, I've seen it before, and I've heard them speak a fair bit, but I just, I guess I forgot, but, uh... Nightingale's yeah. the song with the bubbles, right? Yeah, the the song that the stepsisters are doing for music practice, and Cinderella does it better, and then sings all the different parts, and... And that right there, that's that same inherent stuff, because despite the fact that the sister is literally shown working and practicing it, she sucks ass. No. Cinderella... Ducks it out of the park while doing something else. Yeah. To the point where she is transcendentally good at it. And that is such fucking horseshit. Nobody has breath control that good when they're on all fours. All fours using your upper <laughs> body to scrub. I'm so mad. <laughs> Effing heck. By the way, this is why this is why rhythm games and dance working are things. This is why you will hear the chanted songs of the rail line and stuff like that, that whole evoking stuff. And what kind of songs are those? They are big and loud and you can belt them and they aren't particularly complicated. <laughs> they don't have four-part harmony. No, that's true. Well, no one sings with themselves in four-part harmony except on a, you know, overdub. And but... Tuvalu and throat singers. Oh, yeah. shit. Yeah. But okay, like, you know, Tuvalu and Tuvan, Tuvan throat singers. Tuvalu is a different Tuvalu's country. A different, yeah, I know that one. Uh, anyway, I that like I'm not dinging that as a cinema sin or whatever. She sings in an unrealistic fashion. Oh my god, Fox, did you watch an animated musical? Yeah, but you know, just <laughs> again, it, it's, I make a small indignant noise. It's the thing is, it's one of those things where it demonstrates what matters to them. And like, okay, musicals, characters breaking out a song in a ridiculous periods, sure. But have you noticed the ones that, like, especially the ones that come from theatre? The characters are doing things where an actual human goddamned actor could do the song. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> well, I mean, I wonder why. It's <laughs> yeah. so mysterious. And and that, I think, is a, a really wholesome, like, really anchoring material thing about live musical theatre that I want more unrealistic movies to hold on to. Because... You hold on to some of that realism. It's it's more impressive. Like, you're going to take a thousand takes. You're getting to do edits. You're going to do all this stuff. Give me the bullshit impression that you're at least doing something the way a human does it. <laughs> I'm honestly not too fussed about it. But yeah. Did, did you find it interesting then, given the whole uh, inherent rottenness and, uh, you know, you only sparkle from the inside out uh, morality? Uh to be quite interesting in the context of the narrator at the beginning describing the uh, the stepmother uh, looking to advantage her own awkward daughters. Like, no, no fucking shit. She's doing everything she can to get these two ahead. Everyone they meet judges them as horrifying the second they see them. And they're it, also apparently bad at everything they try. Yeah, I mean... I, I almost feel sympathy for stepmother at this point because, like, this world has doomed her daughters. Well, all a girl can have is being attractive, and they're not. And good at everything. Well, but no, those two are inherently connected. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what are you going to do? You're going to connive and lie and cheat. Yeah, apparently so. <sighs> ah, well. Shame that she's inherently evil and therefore did everything to advance her station in the worst way. Yes. Oh, everything she did is unforgivable because she was mean to a pretty girl. And, like, she's genuinely horrible. This isn't oh, me forgiving she's her. she's awful. But the she's reason- She's, like, proto-mother-gothel bad. She, 
Like, I think they were very, uh, it's not subtle, uh, but it's, it's positively, uh, diabolical for, for 50s level scheming. Yeah. Uh, to, to, they, they have her go full on in a lot of ways. She, she does a bunch of things that are very pointedly actual abuse tactics. Yeah, 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 yeah. And even in the 50s, they were like, well, we've got to make sure that, th- we've got to make it clear that this isn't okay. So, like, imagine, imagine that, that they went, how do we make a mother look awful in a period where people were still at the point of like, well, I'm pretty sure the child can handle some cocaine and certainly beatings in the coal mine. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder how the feeling was about that kind of thing. Like, the logic of the story says that, you know, oh, well, she needed a mother, so he remarried, blah, blah, blah. blah. (laughs) Not that badly. Pretty much is still at the point where mothers are being worshipped, so... I mean, was this a big departure from what you get to see in a film? I realise she's not a real mother, because Disney logic says that step-parents are not real parents and are therefore evil. Yeah. Christ, that's a that's another undocumented thing, but that's that's also like carrying over from the Grimm's fairy tales, like yeah, yeah, adoption, chosen family, found family, and uh, and intermarriage are just you're just doomed. Well, they're aberrant in in yeah. folk tales most of the time because folk tales are astonishingly very interested in the natural order of things. Who would have guessed? Yeah, and like any step parent is going to teach, going to treat the child in their life that they married into terribly yeah well you hate children that aren't yours yeah that's that's pretty much the logic which works because walt disney clearly hates children and there's a certain like savage tribalism to that that definitely like ugh. underlies human history like that's absolutely the thing to call it but yeah ugh, what, a, what a phrase just going back far enough to the roots where you're not really human yet so you just you know go after the offspring of the competitor it's it's the white people imagined fantasy of what? Well, we're sure that that was what things were like when we all lived in huts. <laughs> well, it's what uh, it's what non-human animals do. Yeah. So the assumption is that well, humans were probably like this too. And you know, it's if you're the kind of person who is awful enough to think that that extends to well, non-Western society humans probably did this, then you know, fuck off into the sea forever. Right? Yeah, I'm not excusing that. Yeah, no, that's the thing. It's all that tangled mess. It's like, okay, well, we look at animal behavior, we assert that when we were less developed, that was like that, and therefore we now extrapolate and say, well, the people who aren't white probably are actually that, yeah. doing that right now. The, the final step of, so, and obviously, they are less developed than us is the the problem link in that chain. It's not. Yep. Uh, it's not a faulty observation at its root, mm-hmm. I guess, and I... I I'm talking about this only with relation to the fairy tales, because a lot of fairy tales are interested in that, and yeah, assuming most of them have a lineage back to the fucking darkest of dark human times, yeah, uh, I imagine that's where that comes from. Did you find it interesting uh, to see a small, round, tantruming, pompous, largely ineffectual father uh, who went with the prince <laughs> instead of the girl? Like, you, because we were raised on 80s and 90s Disney for the most part. Yeah. And in that, if there is a small, emotional, uh, pompous, and mostly ineffectual father, he goes with the girl character. I can't remember any of these. I can't, like, you are, you are trying to ring a bell I don't know. Right, you're not like the Sultan in Aladdin? Perfect. Oh, yeah, there's, there's, there's that. That kind of character? Yeah, yeah. They... Disney dads get a lot of shit for being ineffectual, basically. And You're Bell- thinking of Triton. You have to ignore Triton. Well, yeah, yeah that's Bell's the- dad is another good example. I'm just trying to think about which of them have dads. And my first thought was Mulan's dad. 
Oh, most of them have dads. But, None of them have moms. But my point is that you were like, okay, think of Disney dads. And my brain went, okay, Triton <laughs> and Mulan's dad. They're pretty cool. And there's no princess in Treasure Planet. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I suppose the next example I would immediately put, because then we've got in that era, uh, Lion King and Pocahontas, with both feature some of the most loved, loved and respected Disney dads having a grace the screen. <laughs> yeah, I guess. it's just it's the, the it's that all of the the pudding fathers have all slid or hate in my memory. I just don't remember them. Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll get there. It's probably one of those Disney tropes that doesn't show up as often as people think. We'll probably start a dad watch. Shing shing. <laughs> oh, speaking of that, eyelash watch. Occasional eyelashes on boy mice. Well, they're only occasionally human. <laughs> Actually, God, am I sure about that? I kind of want to double check now. I might be lying. I don't care. <laughs> like, the idea of opening up that movie again is making me shudder. All right. I failed on Eyelash Watch, everyone. No, I think that you've done a completely good enough job. This movie's job is to hold your attention. <laughs> I, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> uh, oh my God, the prince. It, sorry, we touched on this earlier and I said we'll talk about that later, but the prince. Oh, Boy, I never really noticed this in the film, and I find it interesting on the rewatch that, like, it's it's one thing for the prince in an early Disney movie to be a faceless mannequin who exists only as a marriage object, right? Right, yeah. It's, it's a weird reversal of the whole girl as object uh, thing, because, like, they are absolutely objects, but I never particularly noticed or observed how much this prince is also an object to his dad. Yeah. Like, he has a couple of informed personality traits, which he does not appear to display. But, like, his dad is literally just trying to put him next to a girl thing until babies come out. His... <laughs> I'm like, wow. His dad doesn't use his... Yeah. He calls him my son. He calls him the boy, I think, once or twice. And the prince. And the prince. And, like, wow, they were really trying not to give Prince Charming he, a name. He doesn't even, he <laughs> isn't even the one who delivers the glass slipper. Which, obviously, he can't be. Because he needs to be able to not recognize her. Because if yeah, he comes yeah. out and is if like, If they just well, took him along. Yeah, if, if, he, if he's the one, like, because in the story, he's the one who actually goes around with the slipper and actually shows it to people. And then any child goes, well, why don't you just look at their fucking faces? <laughs> Even Disney saw that cinema sins dinger coming. Foul mouth little child that they are. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. Like, he, he is, in, in, the, in the big list of things about a character to determine if they are an object, he hits three of the things on the list. He has no agency of his own. No, he I... is interchangeable. Mm -hmm. uh, he is an extension of someone else's wants. Like, there is nothing to this character. It's, it's an extension of two other people's wants, which is, I, I feel like a record we might not see again in one of these movies, frankly. But, he is uh... an elegantly, cra e elegantly crafted nutcracker doll. He, don't they look a bit weird doing that? 360 turnaround ballroom sequence that's uh there are just some angles that do not work for this stylization and yep. you know to their credit they try and swoosh past those as quickly as possible yep <laughs> they knew yep. what they were doing the i mean their animation is is back to top fucking notch this is good shit they were back in full force and they knew it i like it really stands out after fucking saludos amigos where like they do music videos in that so they are so very good at doing animation on the beat all right yes saludos true. amigos is not a bad film for that i'm not trying to dunk on this because the quality of the animation is bad but the sequence in the opening where she's coming down the stairs and 
the timing of touching the um touching foot to stare with the music and the fact that the background has a tilt on the angle so the foot has to change shape when it goes down um you know like because it's getting cut off it's not an easy shot yeah and just like oh this is the opening few minutes and the thing is it's not a special shot it's not meant to look good it's a it's a transitional shot between point to point and they're like we're gonna do a spiral staircase viewed from an upward angle and that's like as much as i would like to say more nasty things about this movie that bored me to tears that's genuinely impressive shit the visuals are a flex all the way through this, really. I assume we're post-war at this stage. My history is bad, but yeah. uh, I assume this is post-war and Disney is realizing the the momentum that they are getting up at this point and, and they're just flexing all over the fucking place. The war ended in 1945, so they've 45. basically had... Oh, so they've had like five, six years to recover. Yeah, but also they have the money from Saludos Amigos and so on. And are we... 52? We're at 50. This is 50 flat, okay. And RKO um, have redoubled investment in distributing. Yeah. So it's also that now you have five-year-olds and six-year-olds from fresh post-war cropping up. Oh, right. The baby boom is about to happen, isn't it? The baby boom is happening. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the things created by the baby boom are starting to have sentience. Yeah. People aren't (laughs) taking four-year-olds to the movies necessarily, but you are, you, you do see that kind of thing. Um, kids matinees and whatnot start happening. And like, yeah, this is definitely going to be a period. And we'll get into that when we get to the box office. Yeah, sorry. That's, uh, this was something I hadn't considered yet. So thank you for bringing that up. Um, you were talking about the prince would just recognize her. Yeah. Uh, if he was the one with the slipper. And you're not wrong. But also the, the fact that they used the misreading and made it a glass slipper. Also, you got to be like, well, this can't be too hard. Who the fuck has glass slippers, right? <laughs> this is not a thing that happens. Surely you've not just seen one of these before and gone, oh yeah, so lots of women wear those. They're very flexible. They breathe nicely. And now, because it's the night, because this movie is 70 <laughs> years old and got to define what this thing is for a generation, we have grown up with people where, yeah, we want a shoe that looks like a glass slipper. Is just, <laughs> it is a thing that a whole bunch of people associate with class and now riffs on that are themselves things. I, I have a friend who sells cosplay props, and one of her most popular props is a shank made out of a glass slipper from the Wreck-It Ralph trailer. <laughs> wow. The Ralph breaks the internet, right? With the princesses? Yeah, that yeah. one. Gosh. By the way, those are in the canon. Boy. Yeah. <laughs> and and to be fair, the, the, the mistranslation for anyone vaguely about this, um, I'm not sure how legitimate the sourcing of this is. Um, like, but the thing is, when it comes to fairy tales and translations and passing around from source to source, it kind of doesn't fucking matter. Well, at what point does a mistranslation just become a different version, right? Like, yeah. Because no one owns this story. But the, they, they credit an author in their version, but, uh, I don't think he was the original source somehow. Yeah. And I, be- I believe this is a grim tale as well. Like, it might be codified by them. But the idea is that originally... In, t- in some forms of the text, she had a fur slipper, and in a French translation, it was mistranslated to a similar sounding word that is glass um, or crystal, and that became the glass slippers. And don't get me wrong, that's very tinkly, winkly, magically 
pixel. I mean, it definitely looks better. I can see why, even if you know that in the Disney version, you don't go, well, first, lip or obby. No, you go, well, she's already wearing a dress that looks like it's made out of, like, moving glass. So, yeah. of course, she's going to have a slipper that's, like, shiny as fuck. Why would she not? Yeah. So, yeah, like, there's that, you know, thing that we mentioned and didn't click cover. Yeah, fuck it. This is not a very well-structured uh, uh, podcast, but <laughs> you know what? I don't care. <laughs> On the note of the glass slipper. Uh, I do love that they go with a, like, into a more abstract style of of character art, uh, and even, like, the backgrounds and stuff once they get into the, the magic sequence and, and from there. You don't get to see it a whole lot in the palace, but once they go out into the garden, like, if you're paying attention to the backgrounds at that point, some of them are, are getting very heavily stylized, like, right back to that sort of storybook style. Mm. We saw in some of the the previous clip show ones, oh, and it looks lovely, and it works really well for this, you know, pseudo dream sequence kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> boy, so this is love. <laughs> Probably not, to be honest, but okay. <laughs> That's uh, yeah, it's not a song I remember from the days when I used to, you know, memorize Disney songs. They are two misshapen half silhouettes <laughs> of humanity. That that'll do for them. It's such a rough. Um, I can really see why people got into their heads the idea that Disney romances are always shallow and stupid. Because um, back at this point, they definitely were. Yeah. <laughs> like, I I buy a lot of later Disney romances, even if they only have a few days to get to know each other, because they sell it to you. You buy into the emotion, and that's what you really need. Not an assurance that this is a sensible life decision for two characters to make. It's a stupid love story for children. Get over it. But... Back now, yeah, these aren't romances. They're well, just the meeting of two preordained parties. Well, I mean, Dad's right. Just put the right girl and the right guy <laughs> in the right situation and it happens. Yes. He's genuinely 100% correct. They also do, when the, the Duke is describing it, he does, in fact, uh, offhandedly say, you know, the girl who is preordained to be his bride or whatever. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly what this is. Yep. This has nothing to do with actually developing emotional attachment. So points for lampshading it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that bit's honestly funny to me in retrospect, because, like, that's the kind of shit they're doing in the modern princess films. Like, you know, having someone go, <laughs> wow, you fell in love with a guy you only met for three days? How silly! Yeah, it is interesting <laughs> that the whole idea of lampshading is meant to be we know how the story is working and we, we we're signaling that we're aware of this. Um, yeah. this is 1950 if they're lampshading it in 1950 you have no fucking excuse write better stories <laughs> we've had 70 years of the biggest industry of the world making fun of this story trope it's yeah yep I mean don't get me wrong it takes some balls to to comment on it and then just do it 100% straight anyway but you Did, know even then they realized it was a bit silly I is, guess is what we're saying is the result good um Good is a strong word Yeah. for this movie. Yeah. Better than Saludos Amigos. Some stars. <laughs> but did sneering at it in Frozen make Frozen better? Because I don't think so. Anyway, the point was, uh, while that whole sequence was basically chloroform, uh, I do love some of how it looks. And I love the coach wheels specifically, just being these spirals that make no fucking sense. <laughs> <laughs> they don't, they're not wheels. They're just swirly willy bits where wheels go, which is exactly how a carriage made out of dreams should work. Yeah, I that. like that. Yeah. It's the idea of wheels. I do like that, that our prince's one character trait, supposedly. The character trait we are informed that he has is that he's like, free-spirited and shirking his responsibility. And I love that the solution for this is, let's 
put a line of people in front of him that he has to have their names read out and bow to them. That's what every free-spirited boy dreams of. A long, boring, formal evening. We do have one other character trait of his that is otherwise uncommented on by the film. He really likes shiny? No, he really likes riding things. Actually, yeah, all the portraits are him on the horse, aren't they? They're either him riding on someone's shoulder, riding on his dad's back, riding on an actual fucking horse. Like, this is a person who, for all the portraits... By the way, when... Portrait of him being ridden around in the field on his dad's shoulders. Like, that's that's a photo. Right, yeah, who painted that? Yeah. <laughs> wow. And, and also the photo, the painting of him on the horseback is easily something in the district of 80 feet high. Oh, it's like, yeah. It's it's like easily sort of six to ten his dad's high. Yeah. It, so it's like 20 meters to a side. And that's funny, but also fuck off. <laughs> But they also got successively bigger, right? And that was part of the sequence where his dad points to them as yeah. getting further and further away, which, you know, I like that because it sort of suggests that as he's felt more distant from his son, he's tried to make these physical, forced representations of their relationship bigger and more prominent in his life. But I think that's awarding him some complexity that he really doesn't deserve. This, anyway. is, this is us trying to find something. We are playing with Cinderella. <laughs> You're going to understand when we get to Sleeping Beauty why I liked the characters in that so much more uh, as a child. Names? Names. <laughs> yes. Both of them. Even the boy. Anyway. <laughs> and he has dialogue, would you believe? Sure. <laughs> you don't believe me. He's like, I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> We're going to get there. I think it just stand out to you in this attempt to make a, a podcast about Cinderella the movie. We have spent a very significant quantity of time talking about other films we haven't watched yet. <laughs> it's true. We do keep making a lot of call forwards. It's very sloppy podcasting work. Sorry. And it, it's just, this is boring. This this movie is boring. I, I don't have a lot to say about it. <laughs> Right, well, um, in that case, let me just get to the the best part of the film and my notes. Dog Vindication! Yep. <laughs> which we remarked upon earlier, and this is the bit that I saw uh, over and over. Yeah. Pretty much the bit from the, um, the footman getting to the house, uh, and the bit where the stepmother locks her in. With yeah. some of the mouse stuff cut, because we're not here for the mice, we're here for the hero dog. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I just like it, because he's a good dog. And I'm always going to be here for good dogs. Yep. He's a bit of, looks like a bit of an older dog, too. Oh, yeah, that's... Uh, I mean, as far as, as cartoon visual language goes, this is a wheezing, lazy, very much past his prime bloodhound. Yeah. Um, who, you know, just wants to sleep somewhere warm. And as far as on-the-nose fucking stuff goes, he is called into action to save the heroine because of the actions of Lucifer! Oh, how could I forget? I just want to <laughs> remark on the fact that they just... Straight up called the fucking cat Lucifer. Which is probably why he's the one who falls out a window at the end instead of our lead yeah, villain. Yeah, he got a Disney death! Well, I don't think he's dead, frankly. Probably he's not. he's a cat, and the, they, we know they can fall like ten stories. In fact, that fall is probably high enough that he reaches that cat velocity where yeah, they can like, avoid oh, any damage. I'm gonna be fine with this, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, still. I mean, chucked out a window, dies from being chucked out a window, not really the point. Yeah. And, and you wouldn't call your cat Lucifer unless you were inherently evil. <laughs> it's true. Well, I mean, actually, these days you'd do it ironically. In the universe of this movie. Oh, very much so. And not in the 50s. I'm sure that'd be scandalous. All right. Which means we are brought up to the last point, I believe, which would be the box office. 
Right, we do talk about the box office, don't we? Yeah. Um, if this doesn't explode, I'll be very upset. Okay, so this is one where I have to tell you that unfortunately my data is broken. Ah, we don't have the real numbers from back in the day. We only have lifetime earnings and it's a squadillion million dollars. Um, so this movie cost $2.9 million to make and every different tr- way I tried to slice the data, every different website gave up and just told me <laughs> about $300 million intense <laughs> right yeah i think that's lifetime earnings that is absolutely lifetime earnings because when i did go and get it to slice it out into smaller smaller sections it did so by telling me the year and it could only go back as far as 1977 when that information it became published in the 70s too didn't it didn't get a re-release in the no? 70s okay not between 77 and 70 and 79 it did not get released okay. in those years but it did get re-released in 1981, 1982, 1987, and 1988, and that's, that's as far back as I could go. I was going to say, I know it got a re-release in the 80s, because I remember it briefly hitting theatres when I was a kid. Um, but which one of those years was it? Well, not 1981 or 1982, that's all I can tell you for sure. There are two years <laughs> in which 100% of the international take of Cinderella was Australia and New Zealand, where it was rescreened in cinemas here in 91 and 88. Um, and only here. That makes sense. I mean, it probably didn't get much of a look in here prior to that, because I can't imagine that we had... I don't know what things were like here. I can't imagine that we got too many movie theatres back when movie theatres weren't ubiquitous, right? Yeah, I, I don't... I genuinely don't know, because when I went to look for that data of, like, what was cinema like in the 1950s in Australia, I got, like, academic books back. <laughs> so... God, imagine you have to get actual film reels out here. Yeah, and that's, Yikes. like, literally a month of travel. That's scary. Um, So... It is it is hard to get the information about what the actual box office at the time was, but I think given the fact that they were talking about 20 to 30 re-releases of this movie in theatres by the 80s, there's pretty much no way to cut this that it wasn't just an absolutely smashing success. Like, it cost $3 million to make, well, $2.9 million to make, and it's made $290 million over the course of 70 years, and it hasn't been redone in theatres, and this is not counting, this is, this is not, this is not, sales of vhs or dvd or anything this is just box office and the last time it was in theaters was in 1991 (laughs) so that means that in that 40 year period it made 300 million (sighs) yep i mean it's probably getting to the point where looking at immediate box office take is going to be hard to do and not useful yeah for a good long while um it's gonna be a boring story from here on out ironically it does get better once we hit the 90s because at that oh yeah, it gets better. But 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 at that point, they actually were doing things like immediate release box yeah, office. Yeah, they'll do about opening weekends and stuff when we get to that point. And similarly, at that point, we it's just much less likely that the movie ever comes back to movie theaters. It's always yes, movie true. theater and then home home theater. I wonder actually what the last one was to get a, a theater re release because like all the stuff that I remember getting re releases was I think sixties at the late. I want to say the Fox and the Hound is like early sixties, and I remember that getting a re release, but nothing after that. I think I know the answer oh, to this one. Wait, no, Hundred One Dalmatian. I think I do know the answer to this one, but also it's not particularly interesting, and maybe we'll make a thing of it <laughs> when we get there. Oh, okay. Uh, well, maybe now every time we do one of these, I'll try and guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, once we get past 101 Dalmatians, because that's my bet. <laughs> that's the last one I can remember. Uh, and that would have been in the 90s, because I can remember it clearly. All right, then. So what follows hard upon Cinderella? 
Uh, I said this before. What did I say? I was pretty sure the next one was... God, it came out of my mouth not an hour ago. <laughs> um, don't tell me I know it. <sighs> fuck. Peter Pan. Alice in Wonderland. Oh, Alice comes before Peter Oh, fuck me. <laughs> Why did I agree to this? <laughs> like, by volume, we're like a quarter of the way through this. And we've watched a good film. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in my opinion, it's all uphill until, well, actually, Sword in the Stone's kind of crap. <laughs> You're negotiating. Like ten more movies <laughs> before it starts going downhill again. It's, it's we're, we're in the good times, wait, Aristocats. Is but but I'm looking at the stretch that's coming up, and I know full well that I have impressions of all of these movies, <laughs> and I think a lot of them are really boring. So this is going to be wild. <laughs> in summary, I feel like more than anything... Uh, Disney has worked really hard to try and keep Cinderella at, like, the forefront of, of shit people think of when they think of Disney classics. And having watched it again, uh, at the age of 38, uh, I feel like that is probably directly related to it being the least yikesy classic thing that they fucking made. Yeah. Like, I feel like they were like, look at this, look at this, this is positively acceptable for its time yeah love this focus on this one don't you don't want to watch peter pan you want to watch this they haven't had to mulligan on this one yeah and yet they, they did we did not get a disclaimer yeah oh god don't i mean live action remakes don't get me started on those we already started on those you got your kazoo <laughs> eye contact <laughs> should i go again do you want to finish it up that was the end yeah, no that's great it's fine <laughs> but you want to have me breaking down yeah it's fine. okay <laughs> okay <laughs> that was appropriately terrible oh, oh i think i hit fuck. some pretty off notes that one oh, too fuck me oh fuck. trying not to laugh yeah, especially because like I realized, okay, I'm basically, I'm basically praying. Like this is like a fucking ravelry, or like this is like a memorial oh, service dear. where they're playing fucking Disney on a kazoo, and oh, I'm like, Disney. oh yes, take this seriously. Let's <laughs> <laughs> treat this with due respect. <laughs>